Jesus speaking says to us, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Father, hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are the King of kings. Your mercy is more. Now we ask for you to help us. Father, for those here who are in a dark place, I pray the light of the gospel will shine. For, for those who are here and, and just cannot keep going in the direction that they have been going, I pray that they would find what they need to hear from the words of Jesus and the words of Scripture. And for the person who's here is just in their faith and their growth and their maturity, just is a little, or maybe a lot, stuck. God, that your grace would be sufficient to help us to be zealous for good works. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, picking up a little bit where we left off last Sunday, we were talking about the forgiveness of God and specifically how that forgiveness of Jesus was extended to Peter. I think one of the reasons we have so much detailed information about Peter in the Gospels is that we're so much like him. What he needs, you need. What his uh, disposition is, tends to be our disposition. Remember just a few hours before Jesus is betrayed, Peter stands up and says, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you if that's what it takes. And it's a couple of hours later, He's asleep when he should be praying. He pulls out, of a sword, pulls out his sword at the wrong time. And then when a little girl comes up and says to him by the charcoal fire, aren't you a follower of Jesus? I can tell by your accent. Not once, not twice, three times. He says, I don't even know him. And then the Bible says, right then the rooster crowed. Because you remember Jesus has said, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. Or I'm sorry, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And on that third denial, the rooster welcomes the new morning, and the Bible says Jesus looked at Peter. That's important. Where we left off, what do you think that look looked like? Ever gotten a look from your parents, and you know what they were saying? There's the look of uh, anger. There's the look of resentment. There's the look of disappointment. That might be the worst one, right? But here's what I believe the Look on the Lord's face was. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, by the way. It's a look of grace. If you're worried, if you're worried in your mind, how's he going to receive me if I were to come to him? Because you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Well, you learn from Peter. Remember after the resurrection? Go tell his disciples, and Peter, I'm going to go before. It's an invitation. And honestly, all I think just about the hardest thing for sinners to receive in life is grace. 
There's something in us that would just, would just be better. This is what most religions are based on. Just give us something to do to make it better. I want to pay my debt. Look at the scripture. How does Jesus teach us to pray? Not, Father, give me a list a mile long of things to do so my debt can be paid. It's a tough word for us to receive. Forgive us our debt. What does it mean to forgive? It means to not hold someone responsible for the debt they owe. That's what it means to forgive. Now, this is important. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there is no debt or that the debt isn't a big deal. Here's how big your sin debt is. It takes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sinless one, being crucified on the cross and shedding his blood to cover your sin. So this morning we'll emphasize this part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I love to, uh, to read history books, and one of my favorite ones that I've read in the recent past is, uh, is Dead Wake by Eric Larson. Anybody happen to read that book? It's a great book. It, it recounts the Lusitania, and the Lusitania was a passenger vessel that was going from New York City to Liverpool, England in May 1917. World War I was going on at the time, and uh, the Germans with their U-boats began to, well, sink a whole lot of ships. And the Lusitania had a whole lot of American passengers on it. And in May 1917, it was sunk. About 2,000 people were on board the ship. Most of them, tragically, died. And Larson's he's a great writer. And so he gives some accounts of the people who were getting on the boat and tells their story. And as I read the book, it's my second time through. Same thing's happening this time. It's happened the first time. I'm kind of telling them don't get on that boat. You know what I mean? Like disaster is coming. And some of them are aware that it's a little bit dangerous. And some say, I'm not going to get on the boat. And others say, well, we'll we'll be all right. We're going to get on the boat. And then you just keep reading, knowing what is going to happen. What would you have done in May 1917 if you knew what was going to happen? Number one, I think you'd quickly say, what? Not getting on the boat. But that's not all you would do, is it? You wouldn't just be worried about yourself, would you? I mean, if you knew what was going to happen, yes, you would say, I'm not getting on the boat. But wouldn't you have stood there on the dock pleading with people for them also not to get on the boat? You'd stand there and say, disaster awaits so in in that spirit I want to give you a clear warning this morning from scripture unforgiveness is not a trustworthy vessel for you to take through life unforgiveness is not a trustworthy vessel to take through life Nothing is going to move you into troubled waters more quickly and will result in catastrophe more certainly than a heart that refuses to forgive. And here's why. The hallmark of a heart that refuses to forgive is that it doesn't understand how God has forgiven us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When you 
fully understand how God has forgiven you, and that's ruling your heart, you're going to be a forgiving person. Now, I want to talk about what that really means, because again, grace and forgiveness isn't just being nice. I think that's what a lot of people think. You just say, well, just, we'll just take it. We'll just take it. We'll just turn the other cheek, and we'll turn the other cheek. And we'll just... Is that true, that grace is kind of weak that way? Well, here's what I'm going to teach. There's nothing actually stronger than grace. Is Jesus weak on the cross? It looks that way, right? He's the strongest man there. The strongest people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And, and our willingness to forgive is connected to our understanding of how God forgives us in Christ Jesus. Now, it's, I think I'm helped. I know, I know I'm helped in my life when I read the Lord's Prayer. This is not a list of things that come naturally, right? It's not a list of things that come naturally. In fact, right off the gate, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That doesn't come naturally. Do you know what does come naturally? Hallowed be my name. That comes naturally. You know what else comes naturally? My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as I want it to be. Now, our inclination is to want our name to be hallowed, our name and reputation to be appreciated and esteemed. We want to build our kingdom so that it advances according to our will. You ever think that? Man, if everybody just listened to me, this world would be a lot better. We don't really want daily bread. We want a daily buffet. And we don't really just want our bread. We want everybody else's too. And we don't really want to forgive. What we really want is revenge. And that kind of heart can only be transformed by grace and forgiveness. So you're there in Matthew 6. You can hold your spot there. And let's go back to Titus chapter 3. I'm grateful that this past week our fighter verse, and again our fighter verse is just simply a passage of scripture as a church family that and we come around and seek to read and memorize and pray. And we become more like Jesus as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And so uh, man, be regular in your knowing of God's Word. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is going to be our passage. So a little bit bef- uh, a fuller passage than just a fighter verse was. This is a glorious passage. This is one of the passages in the Bible that kind of gives us the full scope of the gospel. So let's read it through together, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But, thank God it didn't end there, amen? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You tracking? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I hope as you hear that, there is something in your heart that says, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. What more could God have done for us in light of who we were than what he has done in Christ Jesus? So this passage teaches us what forgiveness is and how our hearts are transformed. If you track, we went from cast out and his enemy to his heir. How did that happen? Well, if you've got a sermon outline, we'll track together through some points. We'll start here. Our sins must be forgiven. Our sins must be forgiven. Now, we've gone and used right off the top a word many people don't like to hear, don't like to think about, and a word a lot of people want to dismiss. And it's the word sin. But it's the word the Bible uses. In this passage, we're told what sin does to us. And maybe you'll just ask that simple question, what is sin? What is sin? Sin is this, us telling God he's not wanted. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing, and he's not got any say here or over me. So, what do we, be, what do we need to be saved from? It says he saved us. What did he save us from? The answer is he saves us from sin. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and give his life a ransom for many. So let's just, just, from this passage, see a few observations of what sin has done to us. First of all, sin makes us self-centered. Back at the beginning when we say our, our tendency is to say, hallowed be my name, my kingdom come, my will be done. That was the proclamation of Adam and Eve at the fall. The enemy comes along and says, uh, God really say don't eat from this fruit. What is it that they wanted? They want autonomy. You think about it with me. What motivates Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit? This is important. Was it because they were hungry? No. Thousand trees you can eat from. All sorts of varieties. Eat from any of those. Just don't touch this one. And what is it? Why is it that way in us? If you said, here's a thousand things you can go do today, but somebody comes along and says, but just don't do this. What is it that you most want to do in that moment? I want to do the one thing you told me that I couldn't do. So it's not that they're hungry. God's given them everything they need. He's blessed them. He set good and wise boundaries for them. Did they lack knowledge? No, they have God. Do they lack beauty? No, they have God. Do they lack wisdom? No, they have access to God. So what is it that they wanted? They want knowledge that's not connected to submitting to God. Verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Did you bristle at that word a little bit? Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. They want autonomy. They want to call the shots. 
The trajectory of Genesis 1-2, God made it, called it good. God made it, called it good. God made it, called it good. You know what Adam and Eve want? They want to decide what's good without any input from God about it. Friends, that's what sin is. Sin is about living for yourself, unbound to anyone or anything else. Sin is driven by what we want, how we want it, no matter what. Who is God to tell us what to do? You think about that question. And it answers itself, doesn't it? Who is God to tell us what to do? He's God. So the only way the deceiver can get you to answer that question and decide you want to do what God told you not to do is that you have to decide that he's not good. He's not got my best interest in mind. If he did, why is he giving me this boundary? Any parent in the room giving your child a boundary because you love your child? Of course you do. But the enemy twists boundaries into limitations about enjoying life. Friends, if God's given you any boundary, it's not because he's limiting your life. It's because he wants to direct you to where life really can be found. And sin makes us think that freedom really is living for myself. Use the example, but use it again. Over here is this guitar. Don't worry, I'm Blake, I'm not going to pick it up. What if I just sit over here and said, I don't want any boundaries on me. I'm free to play whatever I want. And I just pick it up and I start. You know, you know what I would do, actually? What you would hear? Noise. Grating noise. I'm not free to play whatever I want. But I could be free to play music within boundaries. Your life is created by God to make music, if you can think about it that way. But when we say, no, I reject everything about God and I'll be God to myself, sin makes us self-centered. Music has all sorts of rules, but they don't restrict. They're rules that guide and direct unto something beautiful. So sin, first of all, makes us self-centered. Next, sin makes us rebel against and reject any authority outside of ourselves. That's, again, what the heart of the temptation of Adam and Eve was to. Who is God to tell us what to do? Look what it says in verse 1. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. The oldest lie in the world is that you can live some way without any authority over you. As soon as you reject God, And as soon as sin entered the world, do you know what became the authority? Sin did. Not Adam and Eve. They didn't walk around now as the authority. They'd been deceived. They'd been lied to. And now, sin is their master. And sin is your master too, by the way, if you're not in Christ. Do you know how I can prove it? It's really easy. Just stop sinning. Just stop. Got an anger problem? Just stop being angry. Got a lust problem? Just stop lusting. Got an envy problem? Just stop being envious. Will that work? Will that work? It's not ever going to work. The scripture says whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. 
And this is the tragedy. The deceiver came along and said, here's where life is to be found. But remember Genesis 3.1, he's more crafty than any beast of the field the Lord God had made. He knows what he's doing. He wasn't offering them life. He was enslaving them. And now sin makes us rebel and reject any authority outside of ourselves. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That's what verse 1 says. See, the sin is so uh, dark, it even twists the kind of good things we think we're going to do. I'll give you an example of how sin can creep into a heart. And uh, When my son was little, around four years old, he loved to play Candyland. Kind of went through a phase. Y'all know Candyland? Played it before? Little board, you get your little person and flip over a card and based on the color, you advance a certain number of spots. Well, there's like five or six uh, little decals on the board that if you get that card, you advance all the way to wherever that is. Or if you've advanced, you have to go back. I'm not going to explain the rules of Candyland, right? But Candyland has rules. And I'm one of those people that if a game has rules, I read the rules. Most of the time, I'm sitting there reading until the children say, I don't even want to play anymore, Dad. So we've got to know how to play. Well, Abel, man, my little sweetheart boy, he comes to me and says, Dad, do you want to play Candyland? I said, I'd love to play Candyland. He says, I'll set it up. So he puts the board out, sits down, looks up at me with those blue eyes and says, Daddy, I want you to go first. I said, okay, I'll be glad to go first. Flip it over, it's orange or purple, so I advance four spots. And then he flips over that second card. And you know what's on that second card? It's the decal that advances you all the way to where you're just before the finish line. And he gets this smile on his face. He said, wow, look at how far I've gone, Dad. And I said, wow. And then I said, son, can I ask you a question? And I could see his mind working. I said, when you set the game up, did you put the second card as this card on purpose? And then you told me to go first, like you were kind of doing me a favor, like you're being nice to me. And you know, a child, he said, he didn't say this out loud, but he kind of thought to himself, how did he figure it out? How did he know, right? Do you know why I knew? Same things in me. We want to give an appearance that we're obeying the rules when really what we want is we just want to advance beyond everybody we're not zealous for good works we're zealous for works that advance my kingdom right rebelling against any authority outside of ourselves so in that little game Abel like me wants to play by his rules and then couch it in kindness but I let you go first right so sin makes us rebel and reject any authority outside of ourselves Next marker is that sin makes us isolated from God and others. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. One of the ways that you can speak evil of no one is by never saying something about somebody you wouldn't say if they were physically present. So speak evil of no one. Uh, uh, I'll just go on and tell you, by the way, You'll always find somebody else in life who's willing to be your partner on speaking evil about somebody. 
So always be able to find somebody. And if you've got somebody and y'all get together and you're regularly speaking evil of somebody, repent. Be renewed as Jesus promises that he can. It says, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. After Adam and Eve sinned, they hide from God. And it's not just that they hide from God, but something happens to their relationship too, right? In the end of Genesis 2, when, when God creates Eve and brings her into Adam's life, he goes, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's nobody like this after sin. It's all her fault. God, you gave her to me, so it's kind of your fault too. Sin has an isolating effect. Friends, we were not created by our loving God to live alone and isolated. Jesus, or excuse me, well, Jesus, but the scripture says before the fall, it's not good for a man to live alone. That was before the fall. So sin makes you devalue what's precious and start to think what's precious are things of little value. So the first thing sin makes you devalue is God. Hallowed be your name? Uh Uh-uh. And and then it makes you devalue other people. Then it actually makes you devalue yourself. There's some of us here in this morning that we are stuck in dark places that we were not made for. And you know it. You know this is not what life is to be. But sin makes you devalue. It's like somebody goes into a store and switches all the price tags. And now things that are really valuable are given tags that are saying it's worthless, and things that are worthless are given such value. Y'all, just look at the way people treat one another online. I, I think maybe something that I need to adjust in my life is I need to just cut out all the comment sections. Read an article and then you go down. The online world, it's full of pride, self-righteousness, it's full of legalism, it's accusatory, it's condemning, it's completely lacking in kindness, it's obsessed with its own voice without ever listening. And that's just in the Christian community online. Sin makes us selfish. Cain and Abel are the first two people born into the world that Adam and Eve had ruined. And one murders the other because sin isolates us from God and others. And then sin, next point, is makes us blame and resent others while taking no responsibility. Verse 3. Or, or again, verse 2 rather. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus 3.2 is a description of how to talk to other people in a godly way. And if sin devalues people, then we quickly begin to talk about other people in a devaluing way. We live in a culture where we speak evil about everybody. We're malicious, not gentle. And courtesy, man, it's just gone out the door, hasn't it? Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Remember, I told you that Crete, this island that Paul, uh, Paul's left Titus on to... Uh, to build up the church, has a certain reputation. Uh, it says in verse 12, chapter 1, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, right? so somebody who's from Crete said, 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And look what Paul says, verse 13. This testimony is true. So Crete's a rough place. Crete's a dark place. And Paul says, it's a place the gospel has to get to. Now, just track, this is a real simple thought, but man, this is so important. How will it be evident that the Christians on Crete are different than everybody else? One of the first places it shows up is how they actually treat other living, breathing human beings. He doesn't say show perfect courtesy to those who deserve it. He doesn't say speak evil of people who, for the most part, are nice. He says speak evil of nobody. And and there's the last, I don't know what time frame to put on it. It just kind of has become okay for Christians to speak about people in a way that's not of the Lord. So we live in a day that's very dark and malicious. In the online community, it used to be, well, there's a certain way people treat one one another, but it's spilled over to everywhere. And is it clear that you belong to Christ how you speak about other people, how you treat other people? That's actually what's going to draw people in. Because, friends, we can just state the obvious. If people outside the world come into a church and the people in the church treat people the way that the world does, what's the conclusion that's going to be made? There's nothing different here. So the gospel is really not all that powerful after all. So what does the gospel do? Look at the full scope of the problem of sin. Verse 3. For we ourselves. All right, so now who are we talking about? Can you put your name here in the verse? For Brandon, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Just hang with me for a minute. See the full scope of the problem. Because false remedies and false hopes are no help. For we ourselves were once foolish. If all we had been was that we were foolish, what would we need? Some knowledge. I mean, that's, that's constantly put forth to us as the answer, right? We just need a little more education to be better educated. So we're not so foolish anymore. That's the hope, but that's not what it says says that's part of it, but not all of it. So now we were just foolish and disobedient. So now what is a proposition that we could say, well, if we're foolish and disobedient, what we need is just some clearer rules so that we'll become more obedient. We need to start obeying. We need to start obeying. We need to start obeying. And I don't know exactly how many, but there are a whole lot of pulpits in the country today that that's the message look out on a congregation like this and said, you just need to get your act together and start obeying the rules. Well, if that's all that the problem was, that might offer a solution. But now it says we're led astray. So now we're foolish. Now we're disobedient. Now we're led astray. So that means we just need someone to tell us the right way to go. Oh, Adam and Eve had been told the right way to go. That doesn't mean they did it. Because here's the fuller scope. You're a slave to various passions and pleasures. You're a slave to various passions and pleasures. So yeah, somebody can give you the right knowledge, but that has no basis on whether in your heart you're going to want to do it. It's not a a lack of information that you don't know how to obey. It's that we don't want to. 
because of sin, we're self-centered. So no, we don't need just knowledge or just to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and start obeying. Those might be valid responses if that's all that was wrong with us, but that's only part of the picture. So, the gospel is not, stop doing that, do better, try harder. Please hear me. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Verse 4 is the gospel. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Why does Paul say that there? Because the number one barrier for you to be saved is that you believe there is a work that you could do in righteousness to be saved. That's why Paul... That's what he once believed, but he's been rescued by grace. It's not a work done by you, but according to his own mercy. With the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What has he saved us from? He's saved us from sin that has made us selfish rejecting all rule and authority over us, wanting to build our own kingdom. So quickly, we won't get through all of this this morning. Just do want to say, next point, God has responded to our sins with grace in Christ. God has responded to our sins with grace in Christ. In grace, And grace alone has the power to transform us. We'll close maybe with this first point. It says grace humbles us and forgives us. Grace humbles us and forgives us. Uh, Sin's all rooted in pride. Grace of God is rooted in humility. Give a story as we close just as an example um, you're Titus you're on Crete a, a, an island that is full of uh, what was the phrase um, liars gluttons evil beasts right I mean, people are just mean to each other around there so Paul says looks at that dark place and says the gospel has got to go there we need an outpost of grace and hope and light on that island. And as we're reading, it means that the gospel's transformed your heart in such a way that, that you, you changed from somebody who speaks evil to everybody to somebody who speaks grace to everybody. But I'll give you this story and just as an example of the danger that we might face. In uh, my last year of college, I went to work at Cracker Barrel. They were hiring I knew that because I often went there to eat and saw the sign. said, now hiring. Had a little plan in my heart. I was going to ask Julie to marry me during my senior year of college. So I needed some money to buy the engagement ring. So I filled out the application and uh, got the job. 
So then I'm sitting with the assistant manager who is in charge of scheduling. And she says, here's a form that you can fill out. And you just give the preferred schedule that you want to work. Um, can't guarantee that that's what we'll do, but we like to accommodate as far as we can. So I sat down and I filled out my paperwork and handed it back to her. And she said, oh, I see. You don't want to work Sundays and Wednesdays. I said, yeah, if I can do that, that would be great. She said, so you've heard. And I said, heard? I don't know what that means. She said, nobody wants to work Sundays and Wednesdays. I said, man, Cracker Barrel's a lot of believers here, right? A lot of followers of Jesus. They don't want to work Sundays and Wednesdays. They want to be at church. That's that's why I asked that. And I I said, uh, well, I... uh, just marked those days, and before I could kind of get any words out, she said, yeah, nobody wants to work when the church crowd shows up. That's what she said. She said, they are the most complaining, entitled, low-tipping grumblers regularly. And then she said, is that why you don't want to work on Mondays and Wednesdays or Sundays and Wednesdays? And I said, actually, I was hoping to go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. It doesn't fly, does it? That doesn't matter. Is your heart being transformed? In such a way that it's evident that you're a person of grace, a person of peace. Now, to put this together and maybe just close here, I know I've said that three times, right? So just hang with me. If you believe the gospel is try harder, do better. Just as an example, you'll work, walk into Cracker Barrel And you'll look at that server and you'll say, try harder, do better if you want to earn from me a tip. That's just an example. This is a real life example. It's true though. But don't you think if you've, I know this is a kind of a silly illustration, but this is true life. This is real life. It's the grace of God transformed you in such a way that you're patient with other people. You're kind hearted tenderhearted. God's grace has humbled you and forgives you. And that shows up in everything from (laughs) how you treat people at the restaurant, to how you treat people in your home, to how you treat people in the church. You cannot have been treated as well as God says he's treated you in Titus chapter 3 and go through life speaking evil of people, manipulating people, Because now you live for a whole other kingdom. And now you live in such a way that the honest, deepest hope of your heart is that you live in such a way that people see and they get closer to hallowing the name of your father who is in heaven. Because this person, here's what they would say of Crete, on Crete in those days. These people aren't like any that we've ever seen around here. May that be so in our day too. Amen? So we're going to stand together and we'll pray together.
We'll pick up here. I know, kind of like me, we didn't fill out every fill in the blank. We'll pick it up. But more important than any of those things is now, now, right now, having looked at God's word, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So don't shut down at this part of the service. Now is the very moment where you say, God, help me. God, help me. Your heart, apart from the grace of God, it will be ruled by sin. Have you ever turned to God to be truly forgiven of your debts? When Adam and Eve, at the fall, sought to replace God as God, in grace, God responded by replacing sinners at the cross through his son. It's amazing grace. Have you ever turned to Jesus in repentance and faith and said, forgive me of my sins? Father, now in these moments, I pray that the Holy Spirit does work in power and in clarity. Bring us hope and correction where we need it. And Father, would you give us grace that our hearts have been transformed by your forgiveness in such a way that it's evident in what we ask for when we pray and what we live for in the world. That we are not who we used to be. You're changing us. We ask for help. In Jesus' name, amen.